Brothers and sisters in Christ, I invite you to open up your Bibles, turn to Revelation. We're going to be uh, continuing our series in Revelation. And it's Revelation, not one of those that's kind of really nitpicking all the time. It's not Revelations, it's Revelation, singular. Uh, It's just one Revelation to John, Um, but that's just me being, you know, is that like grammar nerd police or something, something like that. So, um, so it's Revelation, and we are in Revelation chapter two, verses twelve through seventeen. Revelation two verses twelve through seventeen, and I will read. I'll be reading from the, the ESV, and if you would follow along, and then I will pray. We will jump into our teaching and. Uh, um, being mindful that we have uh, all of the kids in here with us today because it is fourth family feast Sunday. Yeah, yes. Finally, a return to uh, the woos for the fourth family feast. Uh, so hopefully everybody brought some really good food. It's a nice, perfect day outside for a nice, hot fellowship in food, right? Okay. Uh, so we will do, uh, we'll be doing that when we're done with our teaching here today. Um, and so if you would follow along in... Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. And to the angel, by the way, these are the words of the resurrected Jesus who appears to John while John was imprisoned on the island of Patmos. So these are words of Jesus addressed to John. And Jesus says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp, two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam. Who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is the reading of God's word. Thank you. Let's pray. Father God, having heard your word, we ask, because of the word's nature, being breathed out by you, being breathed out by the Spirit of God. We ask that you would use this word of your son Jesus to John to address us in our day. So give us willing hearts to hear and to receive the message that you have for them and the message that you have for us. And we pray this in Jesus' mighty name and all God's people said. Amen. 
Well, we are in the uh, section of the book of Revelation where Jesus is addressing the seven churches of Revelation. In chapter two, in chapter one, we saw a vision. John sees a vision of the resurrected Jesus. In chapter two, you have the word of Jesus to John addressing the angels or messengers of the seven churches in Asia. So a couple of weeks ago, we saw Jesus and heard Jesus addressing the church in Ephesus, chapter two, verses one through seven. And then you saw last week Jesus addressing the church in Smyrna, uh, beginning in verse eight through eleven. Today we move to the third of the seven churches, and I want to remind us of the pattern that we see in each of these addresses. There's a, a, a kind of a sevenfold pattern that appears. You have the description of of Christ usually begins the words of him who, and there's one snippet drawn from the vision that John sees in chapter one. Then you have a commendation. I know uh, your works, except for a couple of occasions. There, there is no uh, uh, rebuke, uh, which is the third one. So he has a commendation to, to them. And then he usually turns after the commendation to give a rebuke, but I have this against you in all of them, except for two instances, uh, Does uh, Jesus offer a rebuke? And then he gives them a solution. Um, Usually spells out some way for them to return to back to obedience and faithfulness to him. And then there's a consequence Jesus gives a consequence if they do not obey. Says, uh, if not, I will come to you. And it's usually coming in in a way of judgment. And then it ends with a call to hear he who has an ear to hear. So it's not just directed to that particular church. Anyone, anyone who hears what this message is to them, and if it applies to you, uh, you should listen and obey. And then he gives a promise to those who do, to the one who conquers, he gives some sort of, of promise. We see that similar pattern taking place here with the church in Pergamum, because that's who Jesus addresses. We see that in verse 12. And to the angel... Of the church in Pergamum, right? Uh, now, as we've done throughout the series, I want to kind of give us a little uh, reminder of, uh, or a little background uh, to the church or the city of Pergamum, on where the church was res- residing. Uh, so here you have the map. John is exiled on this island when he gets this vision and is told to write these down. Uh, we saw uh, Ephesus at the beginning of chapter two. Then. He addresses Smyrna, and now he is addressing the church in Pergamum, the one that's the furthest north, maybe 60 miles, 50 or 60 miles north of the church in uh, Smyrna or the city of Smyrna. A couple of features about Pergamum. It was the capital of the Roman province of Asia, Asia, uh, located about 15 miles off of the sea, and it was filled with temples. It had a temple dedicated to the worship of the Roman Emperor Augustus. It had uh, a temple there for the goddess Roma. It was the center of worship for the Greek god of healing, Asclepius. Um, And uh, had an altar or a shrine to Zeus. Uh, In particular, the title that's given to him is Zeus Soter, which means... Zeus, the saver, saving one, or the savior. 
There was a, a temple to Athena there. There was a massive library. I guess it had over 200,000 volumes, which is a lot in, in the ancient world. And so this was a center of uh, worship there. Let me show you a couple of pictures. Um, Pergamum, the, the main part of the city of Pergamum was uh, situated on what's called an Acropolis, like a peak, a, a rock peak or a large hill. So it's situated on the top of a, of a hill. Some parts of Pergamum were below this peak hill here. And as you can see, here's the remains. There's the, a temple to Trajan. Uh, Trajan, actually, that temple was erected uh, after John's vision of Revelation. So Trajan was the emperor, two emperors after Domitian, who was the emperor during John, when he's writing Revelation. So there's, the, there's a temple of Trajan there in the top. There's a, you know aqueduct, and there's a, a marketplace down here. On the top over here is the temple of Athena. Uh, here is a, a really large and very steep theater in uh, Pergamum. Here's the temple to uh, Dionysus. Is at the end of this street here at the bottom. The temple or sanctuary to Asclepius, the god of healing, is at the bottom. And the altar to Zeus is off the picture here to the right. Um, there, there's kind of a more of an overhead view of it. So uh, a center of temple activity, and that's not even listing all of them. But a center of, of temple activity and temple uh, worship of various gods, emperors, deities. Here's the, the temple or sanctuary of Asclepius, the Greek god of, of healing. Um, on the marbles there, you would see a lot of uh, depictions of snakes because that was the symbol. I know, ooh, I just heard somebody say, ooh, yeah. Snake and not, your, not my favorite animal. Uh, or a creature. Um, because the snake would be the symbol, uh, Asclepius' symbol. He had a rod that you'd see over here on the right uh, with a snake entwined around it. That's, that rod with the single snake on it was kind of like his symbol, the god of, the Greek god of, of healing. There's a, a kind of one of the, the baths or um, places there. Here on the top of the mountain, here's the altar to Zeus. The, the remains of the altar to Zeus. Um, the, what was resting on the top of that place there is actually in a museum in Berlin, Germany. And so they've actually taken all of it and reconstructed it. And this is what it looks like in uh, uh, the museum in Berlin. It's a massive structure. So if you see, kind of see what the foundation was with the steps leading up to it, this is what was, was on the top of it. Pretty huge, isn't it? And so this is the altar to Zeus. Here is the remains of the temple of uh, Athena. Uh, and there's the temple to uh, Dionysus. And here's the temple to Trajan again. Uh, this is what you see most prominent from uh, the bottom of the hill now as you're looking up to the top. But this wasn't there in John's day, but you could see all of the, the others. So this was a center of worship in the Roman Empire. And so obviously on Christians who were uh, required to serve and worship the one true God alone, uh, this would create a great deal of, of difficulty for them. And so Jesus comes to the church of Pergamum, to the angel of the church of Pergamum, and he says... Um, he comes with the description, the one with the sharp two-edged sword. And he says this later in verse 16, the sword of his mouth. 
We'll get to the meaning of that here at the end. But Jesus comes to the church in Pergamum and he gives them this commendation. So here's the first of three points today. He gives them this commendation. Jesus commends them for persevering witness. Jesus commends them for persevering witness. Notice what he says in verses 13, in verse 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith. The Christians in Pergamum were not afraid to be called Christians, and they gladly claimed allegiance to Jesus. For this, Jesus commends them. Of course, this is a commendable thing, right? Jesus says, anybody who, who denies me, I will deny them in his gospels. And here, he's looking at a church that refuses to deny him, and he commends them for it. And that they do so, they, Jesus commends them for their persevering witness, even in the face of physical harm and death. He commends them for persevering witness, even in the face of physical death. Notice what it says there also in verse 13. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you. We don't, we don't know uh, more specifics about this individual Antipas. There were lots of people um, in that day named Antipas. There's a couple of other people named in the Bible named Antipas. Well, we don't know if that's the same person or not. But we do know that he, Jesus gives him this title, my faithful witness. And that he was killed right there for his Christian faith in Pergamum. Right there in the city. So he commends them that even though one of their own was actually martyred in their presence, that didn't cause them to recoil and to withdraw, that they, they maintained, even in the threat of persecution, they maintained Jesus' name. He commends them for this. He commends them uh, that they do this in the face of physical harm and in a very tough location. Notice the, the terms that Jesus uses for this place. Twice he mentions this. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Satan's throne. Notice how it ends, too. The, uh, the very end of verse 3. Where Satan dwells. Of course, we would recognize that, that Satan is the, the enemy of God and uh, he is roaming around all of the earth seeking for those to, to devour. We couldn't say that he has one specific residence or, or location in that sense. But what Jesus is saying here in, in a very real sense, uh, his presence here is so strong uh, that he could speak of him as actually kind of living there. Where Satan, and not only where he lives, but where kind of the seat of his power, which is what a throne would symbolize, right? Symbolizing the majesty, symbolizing the power of a king or ruler. And he says, Satan has a throne and it's, and it's there. It's a, pr a pretty amazing statement, isn't it? So this is kind of uh, maybe Jesus' way of saying this, a figurative expression for saying that this is the location of 
Satan and his activity through the various false gods and false religions and false saviors are present. There's lots of temples we saw there. There's a, there was a temple at the time to Emperor Augustus, temple to the goddess of Roma, to Asclepius, Dionysus, Athene, Zeus. And so as I was thinking about this, I was looking at the, all of those pictures and going through, and I was like, I wonder which one Jesus was referring to. So I was reading the backgrounds on, on all of them, and I was trying to kind of uh, spent some time this week trying to figure out, I wonder if Jesus is specifically addressing or, or kind of calling out, in a way, one particular one of these. And uh, I did. I spent uh, probably a little too much time working on that this week. And my answer uh, ultimately was, of all of those, well, pick one. Pick one. <laughs> all of them. Maybe any of them. Any or all of them. Because I was reminded that Satan actually is the one behind all false religions. Satan is the one behind every false religion. Everything that would set itself up against the name of Christ and Christ alone. To, to me, that was the one that seemed to make the most sense. Every single false deity uh, has Satan pulling the levers in the background. Every false religion uh, is, is kind of a puppet with Satan pulling the strings. You ever, you ever notice that like uh, Satan is not... Satan is only troubled when people will truly worship the one true God. He's not bothered. He's not threatened uh, when people are worshiping some other kind of religion. Like... Islam or uh, Buddhism or any other kind of cult. Satan isn't bothered by that. Satan is like, well, I'm really, Satanism isn't like, well, I'm really troubled that people are worshiping Islam. Because he would be glad. His main objective is any other worship that, uh, of any other thing besides the one true and only God, Satan is very pleased with. So he has no problems with cults. He has no problems with other religions. Anything that would seek to deny God and the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, that would be completely fine. Even, even Judaism that rejects Jesus, as we saw in Smyrna last week, see other reference that we have to Satan here in these letters those ones who are slandering you, who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So there's a synagogue of Satan in Smyrna, but his throne is in Pergamum. See how he's behind all of them. What an interesting statement. What a couple of questions I read this week that was uh, kind of made me think a little bit more about this. And maybe it would be helpful for us to think about, too. In what ways could our city or our community be described in this way as a, as a place where Satan dwells? What would, what would be the implications? Is, is Satan resident? Is he dwelling somewhere here in West Michigan? How many of you have the initial thought like, we're such a, 
religiously uh, such a Christianized community that thought would seem so strange at first. But friends, there's pockets of this place where Satan's activity is at work. What ways do we have demonic strongholds taking place in West Michigan? And how should we respond? How should we respond to those? Something for us to think about. Pergamum was the center of uh, Roman government, Roman emperor worship, pagan religion, and it, all of it was satanic at its root. And in that context, this church was not afraid, not afraid to hold fast uh, to the name of Jesus, not afraid to be called Christians, not afraid even in uh, a, a pagan-soaked culture and where physical threat was present, they still claimed allegiance to Jesus. They still say, I identify with Jesus. And for that, Jesus commends them. That's his commendation. So if you are holding fast to the name of Jesus, even in the face of a very difficult place, difficult location, maybe you're working in very secular jobs with, very, uh, with people that have a vastly different worldview, and you maintain the, the name of Jesus, Jesus commends you for that. How many of you experience that? Either neighbors, co-workers, marketplace, friends, jobs, occupations. Claiming allegiance to the name of Jesus. Jesus, he commends you for that. You hold, hold fast to my name. So Jesus commends them for their persevering, uh, for their persevering witness. But Jesus then now moves to a, a rebuke. Jesus is always wanting to push us toward growth and greater faithfulness to him. So even though he might commend us for the good that we're doing, he does have to bring up some of the things that uh, are need correction. And so this is the correction that he gives to them. Jesus condemns them for a permissive compromise. Jesus commends them for persevering witness, but he condemns them for a permissive compromise. Now, let me show you what I mean. Let me read verses 14 uh, into 15. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Okay, now, uh, it, we need to kind of recognize what Jesus is doing here. Uh, throughout this series, and then also through our institute class on how to read and to understand Revelation, I've said multiple times that Revelation is dripping with the Old Testament references. And here is yet another example of him drawing their minds back to the Old Testament, to an episode in Israel's history for them to learn from. And here he does so by kind of saying, 
You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam. Now, what I don't think Jesus is saying is there was actually a person there named Balaam who was teaching something and uh, that, it, oh, that's what a coincidence. There's a, somebody in the Old Testament in Numbers who was named Balaam and he taught some things. I don't think he, what he's saying, he's saying there's some here who, who are teaching and it's very akin to what you saw in the Old Testament story. You would know the Old Testament. You remember this story of Balaam and Balak. Now, how many of us, show of hands, when you hear the word Balaam, how many of you recognize that from biblical stories, right? What's the, what's the image that you get when you, when you hear Balaam? His donkey, right? That's, what's the, that's the only thing that's included in the children's storybook, is the donkey part, right? Or the talking donkey. Um, but you, when you go back in Numbers 23 uh, through 25, 26, uh, even into to chapter 31, there's a little longer story there. The talking donkey is a small part of it. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about who Balak is. Balak, is a, he's a, a prophet, but he's not from Israel. He's, he's a Moabite. Now, remember, the people of Israel were brought out of their bondage of slavery in Egypt. And um, because of their rebellion, they're wandering around in the wilderness until that generation dies off. Then the Lord leads them kind of um, to the east side of the promised land on the other side of the Jordan River. And uh, as he's leading him through that land, he's got to go through existing countries, the Edomites and the Moabites. And Israel had been victorious as they've been going through the land. First, they wanted to just pass through peacefully. Um, but uh, they didn't, the lands that they were going through didn't, didn't take it that way. So they're about ready to go through the, the land of Moab. And the king of Moab knows that they're coming. And so the king of Moab sends a, a, an emissaries to Balak, this kind of prophet person who's not, he's a pagan prophet, to this prophet person. And he says, what I want you to do is I'm going to pay you some money. And if you could just do this little favor for me, if you could curse the people of Israel, the sons of Israel. And um, uh, uh, Balaam goes kind of, you know, thinks about that idea. You know, then the Lord, he goes to the Lord. The Lord says, no, don't do it. And he goes, no, I'm not going to go with you. Finally, Balak sends another delegation out, even more majestic and royal. And he's like, OK, fine. And uh, I'll go. Uh, but the Lord says, okay, you go with them, but only go what I tell you to say. And it's in the middle of that where we have the incident with Balaam because he gets on there and then the Lord knows his thoughts and he knows that he's going to go and do whatever the king pays me to do. And that's why the angel of the Lord appears to him and reminds him, you only say what the Lord says. And so Balak wants the, to pay him so that he would curse the Israelites and he... He says, I can only speak what the Lord God says. The Lord has blessed the Israelites. And so that's, that's kind of where the, the story goes. But in the midst of this, it's not spelled out really clear, but you see something happen with the Israelites. And so let me show you kind of the end of this situation. As Israel is here in the land of Moab, uh, Balaam is credited with causing them, the people of Israel, in this way to kind of get friendly with the Moabite women. Now, remember, God had said, you, the sons of Israel are not to marry foreign women. 
Why? Because God is racist or anything? No. He says, because marrying the foreign women will cause you to worship their gods. That's why. And so the Israelites are getting really friendly with the Moabite women. And notice what it says in uh, Numbers 25. This is kind of right after this whole uh, Balaam situation. While Israel lived in Shittim, this area across in the Moabite territory, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, right? It's not, it's not racial. This is theological. And the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Later we get in Numbers, they say the instigator behind that was Balaam. Was Balaam. It's what it says in Numbers 31, 16. Behold, these the women of Moab, on Balaam's advice, caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. That little detail is what Jesus is referring to, to the church in Pergamum. He's saying, you got some among you that are holding to the teaching of Balaam. And he's causing their minds to go back to Israel's story. And so what he's doing is he's kind of like, a, a, he's, made, he's doing typology here. He's saying, uh, the sons of Israel in those days are kind of like you right now. And what you're experiencing, the teaching you're getting right in your area, within your church, is akin to the, uh, to the akin of what uh, Balaam was doing to Israel. And so this is why Jesus adds this phrase. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So in other words, he's kind of saying this teaching of the Nicolaitans. That's the teaching of Balaam. In history, we don't know a whole lot um, about the specifics of the Nicolaitan teaching. But Jesus' connection here to to Balaam should tell us a great deal about what this is about. This is about the temptation to uh, engage in sexual immorality and start to worship false gods. That's what the case wasn't for the people of Israel in Numbers. Jesus says here that you would eat meat sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. The very things that would have been done in the, the temples in Pergamum. So you see the connection. He's saying, we've seen all this before. The teaching of the Nicolaitans would be those who are in the church who say, hey, I claim Jesus. And I think it's okay for us to go and engage in the activities in these temples. I I think we can find some consistency between what Jesus taught and in our outreach to those around us, we can engage in the pagan practices around us. Okay? Okay. That was the temptation for the Israelites in Numbers. That's the influence of the Nicolaitans here. Do you see the connection? And so what Jesus is doing here, he's, he's saying, uh, he gives us enough details and enough specifics. Don't engage in the uh, sexual immorality that was required in the temple practices there. Uh, don't eat the food sacrificed to the idols 
Don't participate in these sorts of things. And don't do so in the name of Jesus, trying to say, trying to synthesize Jesus with the pagan practices. Jesus says, no. No. Jesus condemns them for permissive compromise. Don't take faith in me and try to merge it with pagan practices and then call that faithfulness to me. So this was the problem in Pergamum. Friends, we have this kind of situation. Uh, there's always this temptation all throughout church history and even in, in our day. The temptation to kind of merge Jesus, the Christian faith, with other things, other kind of pagan backgrounds, pagan um, pagan practices and to try and say you know what that's okay we're just going to bring those along and they they have no conflict with one another sometimes see this in certain churches that will have like an interfaith service and they would try to make the case that it's totally okay uh, as part of our christian faith because jesus was all about love and these other religions have these similar things in common so we will all get together for an interfaith service right this would be the type of things, uh, this kind of permissive compromise that Jesus did not, did not tolerate. Jesus was not going to allow the merger of pagan practices and associated with his name. He commends them. I commend you that you're really faithful to me. And that's good. That's good that you're faithful to my name. But I have this against you. In seeking to try and build bridges and bonds with, with those who are clearly not Christian, don't try to seek to find common ground with them and incorporate their beliefs and practices into mine. Because I, that I, have, I have that against you. So this compromise with pagan beliefs, pagan ideas, and pagan practices. Jesus forbids. As a matter of fact, he gives them the solution. Notice what it says uh, here in verse uh, 16. Therefore, repent. It's interesting. Actually, in some Greek manuscripts, it's only one word. The word therefore isn't even there. He just says repent. You have some there who's following the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Stop. Just stop. Repent. Which means turn around. Don't, don't do it. And then Jesus gives the consequence of disobedience. If you're going to continue to tolerate those who are doing these, permitting this kind of uh, compromise and the synthesization of Christianity with other things, he says, I, I just want to warn you that I'm going to come at you, verse 16, if not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Notice how the picture that we're introduced in every church is applicable to uh, either the promise or the judgment that Jesus gives. The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword in his mouth was left out there. But Jesus here in verse 16, he says, if they don't, I'm going to come and wage war with them with the, the sword of my mouth. This, uh, the, the word, there's lots of different terms for different kinds of swords in the ancient uh, world. This would be like a long, kind of little hook-shaped one that have two sides. It's literally two-mouthed. 
means it's able to, to devour two ways and to eat both ways. It's a two sharp, two-edged sword. And uh, uh, so meaning it's pretty effective. It cuts both ways. And that's what the, the sword that's out of Jesus' mouth. Jesus is coming and he's saying, I'm standing in judgment over you. Because of compromise. This is how serious this compromise is. If you compromise, I'm going to come at you and I will war with you with the sword of my mouth. So Jesus commends them for persevering witness. He condemns them for their per- permissive compromise. And then Jesus says, uh, Jesus' conqueror, conquerors are provided entrance to private fellowship. So he gives the call to hear, verse 17. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And then here he gives the promise to the conquerors, to the one who conquers. In other words, to the one who does the solution I have given. And this was just the one word, repent. To the one who repents and rejects pagan practices, rejects the merger of uh, pagan ideas and pagan practices along with Christianity, the one who doesn't do those things, he says, I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. What, what is Jesus referring to here? Well, a couple of things. Uh, manna should be familiar because that's the food that the Lord provided for the people of Israel in their wanderings in the wilderness. Right. He provided these uh, this food and Jesus kind of says, I will give you your provision of your food. Uh, It's going to be a a hidden one. This is kind of a way of saying, um, I I believe this is a reference in chapter 19. uh, When Jesus gets together with all of his people, he's describing it as a marriage feast of the lamb. And so I think this is kind of a way of kind of pointing toward that there he goes by the way that marriage feast of the lamb uh you will get a hidden manna that that manna is not present yet that has to come when i come back and i judge uh, he goes but then when i do i will gather all of you we will have one big feast together and i think what jesus is hidden manna here is saying the manna that hasn't been revealed yet the food that i provide for you so the hidden manna uh this so this is very similar to what you'd see in uh to the church of Laodicea in chapter 3. You know, Jesus stands at the door and knocks. Anyone who opens, I will come in and I will eat with him. This, is, this openness to fellowship, I think, is what's pictured uh, there. And, um, and it, the, the, the irony here, too, is that one of the temptations that the, the church in Pergamum was doing was to go and eat meat, sacrifice to idols, and hear... Uh, Jesus is, says, no, don't do that. Instead, actually, I will give you hidden manna. You know, it's a little play on, play on words there. And so what he's saying in essence is, well, don't, don't compromise. Don't eat that kind of food. Instead, I will give you true food to eat. As a matter of fact, Jesus himself said, I am the true bread that came down from heaven. So remain faithful to me, um, and you will receive the bread of life. So don't eat meat to idols. Eat the bread of heaven. And then he has a, he says a white stone. Now this one is a little less clear. Um, 
White kind of is the symbol of purity or of righteousness or innocence. Um, you see this uh, in several places in Revelation. If you looked into verse or chapter 3, um, you have this reference to the, the people who are in Sardis who haven't soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white. Verse 12, you have uh, the one who conquers. You have the mention of the, uh, this new name. Write on him the name of my God. So the white stone also was uh, in Jewish legal practice. When the, they would get together and the, the jury, so to speak, would be offering their verdict, they would do so by casting uh, either a white stone or a black stone. White for innocent, black. Uh, so there's some speculation that this may be some reference there. So this white stone would be like uh, either an acquittal or a way of permissive to say you can come and have fellowship with me. And this one will have a new name on it. He just keeps that. I think that this is shorter term for what he addresses in verse 12 of chapter 3. To the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own name. Taken together, it's best kind of seen as this is the way of God saying, I am providing you entrance into fellowship with me. You conquer. You remain faithful to me. You don't just do persevering witness, uh, but you don't. You don't try to synchronize me with other things as a way of trying to do outreach. You remain faithful to me. You persevere in my name, but you don't compromise. And I will get I will dwell with you as my people. Friends, that's our call today. We're going to be challenged. We have been challenged. We are being challenged. Lots of places in our in our culture, in our day to compromise, to compromise with the culture around us. So as to to seem like, hey, we're building bridges. We're reaching out with those uh, that worship a different God than us. We're challenged to incorporate some pagan practices and pagan ideas and calling that discipleship. And Jesus says. It's great that you want to remain faithful to my name. But remain faithful to my name in my way. Don't engage in permissive compromise with those false ideas. Remain faithful. And we will get provided access and entrance into fellowship with Christ. Amen? So brothers and sisters, let's, let's close with a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you that Jesus really is the bread of life. As you had fed the Israelites in the wilderness, the manna, God, we, we thank you that Jesus is the, the bread that sustains us. That it's by his life and his death and his resurrection, we have life, even in the midst of death, and we will have resurrection. God, thank you for this word of encouragement to the Pergamum church and challenge to them. God, we would pray that, that all of us would 
seek to do our best to persevere in faithfulness to you, but that we resist the temptation to try and synchronize you with the world around us. Prevent us, God, from that sort of compromise with the things that uh, are not from you. Protect us, God, from the, the compromise, the temptation to compromise with the other systems that actually have Satan controlling the strings in the background. So, God, continue to shape our minds so that we would know you, your son, and the ways that you would call us to be in this world. God, as we now go to share this fellowship meal together, may our time of fellowship be rich. We ask your blessing upon the food that is provided, and we, ask, we pray a prayer of thanks for the hands that have prepared it. And God, may um, these times of fellowship um, point us to the marriage feast that we will have with Jesus when he comes. May our fellowship in the name of Christ with one another around this feast anticipate the day when we can do all of this together in the feast that will last for eternity. So God, help us to put your word into practice. In this we pray in Jesus' mighty name and all God's people said, Amen. 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 Friends, let's stand for closing benediction. Brothers and sisters, now um, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the fellowship that we have in the Holy Spirit be with all of you as you go.